Our New Testament lesson is found in Romans chapter 8, reading verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the, revelate, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that it is in your light that we see light. And you have sent out your light and your truth in Jesus Christ, and he has made the true God known to us. And so as we come to your word this morning, we do ask that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, I was in conversation with one of my neighbors. We were new acquaintances, and after learning my vocation, he said that he had no real particular interest in God. Being a clergyman, this is a showstopper. It's difficult to know where to really move forward from there. And so I asked him the question, well, how exactly did you arrive at that conclusion? How did you find yourself in that place? And I learned something in his response. He gave me a very intriguing explanation. I want you to listen carefully to what he said. But he said, Jesus teaches that the meek will inherit the earth, but I don't see it. He went on to explain that it's simply not the way things work in this world, that the meek don't inherit the earth, that the ones who prevail are the strong and the cunning He concluded that that's the way things are, and that's the way things will always be. In other words, when my neighbor looked at the world around him, what he sees is a world where the meek do not prosper, where they don't flourish. But rather on most days, those who prosper and flourish are those who really have no regard for God, who are not very much interested in his ways, are not showing any strong concern for mercy, who do not have many scruples or ethics, that those are the ones who seem to get ahead in life. And so looking at that, many people, including my friend, they conclude that the entire thing just isn't true, that the Christian hope just seems to be built upon a mirage. What was fascinating is that my friend was doing a better piece of of theology than he ever realized because he was pointing to a real tension. It is a tension that haunts every Christian because it often seems that those who have 
no real interest in God are the ones who precisely flourish in this life. John Calvin, in his commentary on Psalm 37, points this out. He captures it this way. Listen to what he says. The more boldly any man despises God and runs to every excess in wickedness, so much the more happily he seems to live. That there's a correspondence, Calvin says, between how much we despise God and ignore him and how happy we are in this life. And this is a real spiritual predicament. It challenges our faith because we live inside of these circumstances. It's the circumstances divine for us here in Psalm 37. And it leads to a significant question that you and I, as professing Christians, have to answer. Because if this is the predicament, the spiritual predicament in which you and I live, that we find ourselves, then how exactly... Do we nurture a true and a lively faith under those conditions? Psalm 37, if you're to look in verse 7, offers one challenging answer. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You then find the same answer amplified in verse 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. In sum, the answer that Psalm 37 provides for us about how we live in a world where evil seems to flourish and have the upper hand as we await an inheritance is that we are to wait, we are to be still, we are to be passive, we're to stop. It's important to point out here, though, That there's not a complete and total passivity encouraged here. It's not that the Bible is teaching that when we see evil and injustice, we are simply to roll over, ignore it, and just wait for God to deal with it one day. We are told to wait. We're told to be still. But there's a particular type of stillness. There's a particular type of waiting that it is encouraged here. And as you look at the psalm, you see that this is actually a very active form of waiting. It's an active form of being still. We have a collection of verbs in these first nine verses that are worth your attention. In verse 1, we're told to fret not, that is to be not anxious or not be disturbed. In the second half of verse 1, we're told not to be envious. This is the active part of waiting. We're told in verse 3 to trust the Lord. And then later in verse 3, to do good. Verse 4, we're instructed to delight ourselves in God. And then once again in verse 5, that we are to commit our way to God. In verse 8, we have two more commands about this waiting. That we're to refrain from anger and that finally we're to forsake wrath. And so the stillness and the waiting that God commands of us, it has a particular shape. It's particularly active. And we'll consider that activity under two broad strokes this morning as to what it looks like to wait faithfully on God. But first, we wait faithfully on God by renouncing ourselves. 
Now, one thing in dealing with Psalm 37 is we have to understand the language that it uses. It is a wisdom psalm of the Old Testament, and that means it uses a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Typically, when we hear those words today, what we're prone to think is the wicked are really, really bad people, and the righteous are the super-Christians. And so that's who this psalm applies to. But in Old Testament usage, and for us to appreciate today, that the wicked and the righteous are simply a contrast between those who have faith and those who do not. It is those who believe in the promises of God and seek to order their lives by his precepts, and those who simply ignore God and want nothing to do with him. That is the difference between the righteous and the wicked. And we learn from the Psalms that the wicked are not just those outside of the church, that the wicked actually inhabit the church, and they're also outside of the church, that we have Pharisees and we have Romans, we have Sadducees and we have idolaters, we have false teachers in the church, and we have worldly hypocrites. That wickedness is all around, and that the righteous are those whose sins have been forgiven and have been reconciled and repaired to God. And as we said, the apparent prosperity of this community of people who do ignore God, those who defy God and don't take him seriously, that it does create a certain predicament for us who seek to follow him. And what the psalm explains for us is that one of two things can happen to us as we watch the lives of those who ignore God and turn away from him. But you'll see the first dynamic in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Because of our own particular weaknesses and the sins that still continue to live inside of us, we can look at the lives of those who ignore God and distance themselves from him, and we can grow envious of that. It can seem attractive to us. They have no greater concerns than the pleasures of this present life, and it can look like everything just goes well to them. The psalm tells us later on that the wicked man was like a green laurel tree, seems to be flourishing and prospering. And so we become disturbed by that image. It bothers us. It creates anxiety in the heart, and we become jealous of that prosperity. This is one of the things that can happen to those seeking to follow after God is that we can then turn and begin to seek after those allurements that we see others experiencing. The second dynamic that we find is found in verse 8. We read there, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. This is the other way that we can respond to this prosperity of those who don't follow after God. But rather than wanting to join in with them explicitly, is that we become resentful. And we begin to harbor an inner rage which begins to plot and to plan in order to seek revenge. When we look at the prosperity, it causes fret. That is, it disturbs us. It disquiets us. We recognize that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be. But then we want to take matters into our own hands. And what God tells us here 
is that when we hold on to our anger in this way, when we harbor that resentment, is that it tends only to evil. And so no matter how righteous our concern is, the wrong that we see in the world, when we seek to bring about this justice and to vindicate God ourselves in our own plans and with our own judgments, that our anger will tend only to evil, that it will consume us. And even if we begin with a righteous cause, what we will find is that we will become unrighteous people. It's a beautiful illustration of this from my neighborhood in North Arlington or in Southern Arlington when we lived in Northern Virginia. We were part of the Neighborhood Association, Arlington Heights Neighborhood Association. We had several surface streets that ran to Fort Myer and to the Pentagon, and so there was a good bit of traffic that would cut through these neighborhood streets, and there was some speeding involved. The Neighborhood Association decided to take up the issue of speeding, particularly the president. And so the county sheriff was called into a meeting where he was dressed down for his lack of concern for our South Arlington neighborhood. And that the problem was that the police were not using their radar guns in the neighborhood, and they were not properly then doling out tickets that particularly needed to be given to those drivers from Maryland who were running through our neighborhood and spoiling the whole thing. If you've ever been to Washington and lived in Northern Virginia, you'll know there's a particular disdain for Maryland. Don't understand why. But they were the target. And so the Neighborhood Association, particularly the president, up in arms, asking the police to do something. Traffic calming measures were then put in place, particularly along 2nd Street South there. A month later, the sheriff returned to the Neighborhood Association, where once again he had to face the ire of the Arlington Heights Neighborhood Association president. But they had a traffic report from their calming measures, and the traffic report read this way, that over 85% of the tickets that were given during that month, which was a substantial number, actually were given to residents of the Arlington Heights Neighborhood Association. And then with great delight, the sheriff reported that the president herself had been ticketed. <laughs> and this is the way it is with us. We can begin with our righteous cause, but then we can grow excessively devoted to it, and it consumes us. And our judgments end up becoming our own judgment. And this is why the Bible consistently teaches us to forsake wrath, to turn away from it. Because, friends, you and I, we're not qualified for that job. That we don't have a righteousness in us that allows us to execute justice in that way. And so these paths are not open to us. And so we're called to renounce ourselves here in this psalm. That is, we're called to turn away from envy and jealousy that can accumulate in our soul as we look on those who we deem to be prospering, as we suffer under that dread affliction of comparison. And then we're also called to turn away from a supposedly and allegedly righteous wrath 
because we'll simply condemn ourselves. And it is when we fail to renounce these things that they end up consuming us and destroy us. They destroy our faith in God's goodness, and they destroy our faith in God's justice. And it impacts our approach to everything. But faithful waiting will involve the renunciation of these things. But we also see a second piece to this, about what it means to be still and to faithfully wait on God. We see that we also wait by surrendering ourselves to him. In this waiting, we do renounce certain things, but then we also actively give ourselves to God. And the psalm emphasizes this surrender in two ways. First, we surrender ourselves to God by trusting God with all of our days. Verse 3 states it simply, trust in the Lord. This trust is not simply the faith in his covenant promises that he forgives our sins, but it's also apparent in the broader psalm here that this trust is a trust in God and his providential care over every day of our lives. It's captured beautifully for us in verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. That is simply the one that God has set apart for himself, that God has made his own by his mercy. The Lord knows your days. That is the promise of God to you. No matter how unspectacular that day is, no matter what tension that day has, no matter what failure might meet you on that day, no matter how hidden your day may be from the public, no matter how painful or lonely you may feel on that day, what we are promised from God is that God knows our days that he numbers them, that he's intimately aware of them, that they are not forgotten to him. And so we entrust ourselves to God with how he orders our steps, with how he directs our paths. And what we know in the midst of that is the good and loving God who sends Jesus into the world on our behalf to accomplish everything that salvation comes from him and that salvation will come from him, that he's not going to somehow forget us in between. That this God, as we read in Romans 8, works everything together for our good. Even the evil things, God has capacity to use for our good and for our betterment. And so we surrender ourselves by trusting that wisdom of God that's in work, at work in everything, in every day of our lives. And so we freely offer ourselves to him in that way. But there's a second way that we surrender here in the psalm. We see that we also surrender by continuing to walk in God's ways. That is, we submit to his wisdom in the second half of verse 3, we find this explicitly laid out. After reading, trust in the Lord, we then hear and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Obedience is difficult, it's especially difficult when there is no remarkable or tangible reward that we experience on the other side of it. Our weakness is such that we like applause and congratulations when we do something good. 
And over the years, obedience in the long haul of the Christian life can particularly become monotonous because we're commanded to do the same types of things. We get tired and we grow weary of doing good. We begin to wonder, does it really matter? Does anybody see it? And the world, with all of its brokenness, with all of its injustice, with all of its sin, with all of its evil, and with all of its death, has this effect on us of wearing us down, of making us tired. And the main challenge for us in all of that weariness that assaults the Christian, the challenge for us is to remain teachable. That is not simply that we learn the Bible, but that we hear the voice of God and respond to it. That as he teaches us, that we be directed by him and that we follow him. Many have noted how repetitive this psalm is. It is, it's long, somewhat tedious. It's actually structured like many of the psalms by the Hebrew alphabet. And yet to each letter of the alphabet, alphabet is given two lines. And so it is long and it's expansive. And many have asked, why? Why were all of these words used? It's intentional. Why did God do it this way? Calvin explains beautifully for us that the repetition speaks to the continuousness of your struggle and of my struggle. The things are repeated here because we continually struggle with these dynamics that we must be taught by God and that God is giving us the same truths over and over throughout the psalm in order to wash them over our minds, to give us to them to contemplate once again. Because, friends, we never simply come to the place in the Christian life where we no longer to be, need to be taught, need to be reminded from God, whether we are young in the faith and just at the start, or whether we are at the very end and about to graduate. We are not beyond the need to be taught and to be led by him, that God would send out his light and his truth, that God would illumine our ways, that God would remind us of all that he has done on our behalf and all of his promises that are good and true for us and all that he would instruct us in. We never go beyond that. And that we always want to surrender ourselves day by day with each day that we have to walk in God's way. And this is what it looks like to be still. This is what it looks like to wait on God. That we renounce ourselves, turning away from envy and turning away from wrath. That we surrender ourselves, trusting our days to God and also continuing to walk in his ways. But it does leave one important question to answer that comes from the psalm. How exactly, though, do we leverage all of that renunciation and all of that surrender because a life that involves renouncing ourselves and surrendering ourselves to God, we have to answer the questions, how do we do that over time in the long haul in all the weariness of Christian experience? The predominant repetitive feature of this psalm is the answer to that question. Follow with me in verse 9. For the evildoers shall be cut off, 
but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Once again in verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Verse 22, for those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. Repetitive, to remind you of your inheritance, that your inheritance is the land. And Jesus helpfully interprets this for us in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, Jesus quotes from Psalm 37, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That it's not a piece of property, of real estate in the Middle East that is your inheritance. Know that your inheritance is the whole world. That Jesus inherited the nations, going down into death and being raised from the dead and ascending to God's right hand. He's the ruler of all the ends of the earth. The remotest parts of the earth belong to him. And when we believe in him, when we put our faith in him, God then grants us his inheritance. As sons and daughters, we participate in the inheritance of the Son. And that is what is held out to us here in Psalm 37. That the way that we endure, the way we leverage that life of waiting on God, of being still and waiting on Him, is we look to that future inheritance. Because we're not simply hoping for something, aspiring to it, wishing it would happen. But there's a settled confidence inside of the Christian that this inheritance truly and certainly is ours, and it is ours for one distinct reason, that light has dawned on our world, that God became a man. He came into the world to deal with the problem of sin, your problem and my problem. And he went down into death to deal with that problem. But then that death could not hold him, that he destroyed death, rising from the dead. And he then ascended to God's right hand. And we're now asked to live between two critical events. We live between the moment of the confirmation of all of God's promises in Jesus' death and resurrection. And we live between then the, 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 in the gap of the final consummation when our Lord Jesus returns. And in that gap, we still live in a confused world where, yes, sometimes the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to have a harder time of it. There's no small challenge present. But friends, we're not being pushed along and shoved along by God. But he puts this great inheritance out in front of us and it draws us it pulls us along. It attracts us because it's so beautiful and it's so good. Did you hear what Paul said in Romans 8? That the creation is on tiptoe. It's eagerly awaiting what? The revealing of the sons of God at the resurrection. Your full adoption when your body is made new. To inhabit a new heavens and a new earth, a world made right where there's no more sin, there's no more injustice, there's no more evil, even in you, that the world is purged and clean and pure and God fully communes with us. It's not inhibited. 
There's no more hiddenness. There's no more crying. There's no more pain. And this is the key to Christian waiting, is to have this robust vision of what is ahead of us and to know that that is certain because of what's behind us, what Jesus has already accomplished and secured for us. And so, friends, we wait upon the Lord. We wait on him. We wait with patience. And let's ask God to continue to help us to learn to wait on him. Let's pray. Father, in light of what you've revealed to us, we're very consciously aware of all of our weakness. We acknowledge that our world has the capacity to provoke envy in us and jealousy and that we turn away from you. We acknowledge that our world also has this tremendous capacity to provoke anger in us and resentment in which we seek revenge. Free us from these things and help us to renounce ourselves and to turn fresh to you. And grant us to be teachable, that we would submit ourselves to your numbering of our days and how you order those days, trusting your good intentions. And we ask that we would always be teachable to what you have revealed. Remind us again and again of your truths. Wash those over our minds. Take this repetitive psalm and drive it down deep into our souls. And God, we ask that you would awaken hope. That as we enter into this season of Advent, remembering the first coming of our Lord Jesus, that we truly look for the second one. And grant us to be a hopeful people. Teach us to be still. Teach us to wait today. We're grateful for the gift of prayer. That you grant us the freedom of approaching you in and through your Son to make our needs known. So hear us today as we come in his name. Let's pray for the following concerns in silence. Let's pray for God's work to advance throughout the world as he reconciles men and women to himself from every tribe and from every tongue. Let's especially pray for our mission partners, Brian Thomas, serving with RUF at the University of Florida, and also Juan Jose Coto planting a new church in Caguas, Puerto Rico. And let's pray for all in authority in our nation. And let's ask God to endow our leaders with wisdom so that they may use their power for good and not for evil. Let's remember our president, Donald Trump. Let's remember our president-elect, Joe Biden, the justices of the Supreme Court, and the members of both houses of Congress. And let's pray for all the sick and suffering in our congregation, those who are unwell in body and in mind, and let's ask for God to have mercy. Let's especially remember Branson Bishop, and Barb Day, Elizabeth Garnett, Gar Garganius, Hector and Viona Harima, and Wayne Noble. And let's give thanks to God this morning for the safe return of Jonathan Waddell after many months of deployment. Let's ask for a good transition back into home life.
And finally, let's pray for the children of Christ Church. Let's ask God to be at work in their hearts from their earliest of days that they never remember days apart from knowing Jesus Christ. And all these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.